Reading this week comes from John chapter 7, recovering verses 10 through 13 tonight, if you'll read along with me. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I pull up my sermon here, I just want to uh, encourage you parents. Um, we all know why some churches uh, have a, uh, have a uh, children's ministry where they dismiss all the children and send them off uh, somewhere where somebody tries to teach them something. Um, but uh, here we understand and uh, believe strongly that um, the word of the Lord from the pulpit and from the songs uh, and from the meditations and everything we do here does sink in. It does have an effect and we've seen that numerous times uh, over, I've seen it numerous times over the last few years and, uh, and it's such an encouragement when the odd time you'll see a small child in front of you repeat what the pastor just said at the front of the church and it doesn't seem like they're paying any attention whatsoever and yet suddenly they're repeating the very words that they just heard very self or subconsciously I would almost say so take courage take heart the Lord's word is at work and it will get better and besides that for the rest of us it gives us lots of time to practice patience right especially the, for, for the parents it was sanctification for our confession it was time to practice it we have been dealing with, from the beginning of John's Gospel, the vital question that absolutely must have an answer, and that's namely, who is Jesus? John's opening made it abundantly clear about his claims of who Jesus is, and then his Gospel proceeds to give the story about how John reached that conclusion. And he exhorts us to reach the same conclusion at the end of his book. Last week, we looked at the fact that even Jesus' own family up till this point did not believe in him. So this week, we pick it up and we'll study the second half of this, what I might call a short addendum to Jesus' return to Jerusalem. What we're going to see by the end of verse 13 is that Jesus has caused a bit of commotion in Jerusalem. And people are talking. But what are they saying? There are many opinions about Jesus, and we're going to hear just two of them today. It starts in verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. We don't have a clear timeline for when Jesus went to the feast compared to that of his brothers, but the important points are that he did go. And he went according to his time and not by that of his brothers. We, uh, how often we feel compelled into action by others when we're not ready, right? Our time isn't right. Sometimes we give in. We give in to that pressure and what happens? 
All too often things do not turn out as hoped, but turn out what we might call as they should, or maybe even more clearly, they turn out as we probably should have predicted they would, considering the circumstances. Likewise, if you're anything like me, you tend to go full speed ahead. The time is always right. And once again, the end is no surprise. As enough prayer and thought and wisdom was obviously lacking. We are compelled as Christians to do work. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, tells us as much. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 2 and verse 10. Christ was absolutely to go to the feast, but when the time was right and for the right reasons. We also see that he went in private. If we are understanding the text correctly, we came to the conclusion that Jesus' brothers weren't believers, but they did like the limelight. And they wanted Jesus to head back to Jerusalem, not in order to fulfill his obligations according to the law, not according to what God had planned for him, but according to their evil desires. To increase his popularity, kind of increase his following again. Now some may say, why do you call his brothers evil? Well, as we covered last week, we call them evil because Jesus called them evil. But we might ask, why or what exactly made them evil? Is it simply because they didn't believe Jesus was God? We can say that anyone who is not reborn is still in their sins and cannot please God, or even so much as see His kingdom. But we also know that our desires when not in accordance with God's word and are for ourselves or for our own glory will eventually manifest themselves as being wicked. I was fortunate enough this week to have an example for you. I watched the new Elvis movie. I watched it with my mother-in-law this past week considering my wife and son are off back east having a beautiful holiday. Uh, her husband is with them and so she's all by herself and let's face it, father-in-law wasn't going to go with mother-in-law to go watch an Elvis movie anyway so I thought I would do the nice good thing and go watch it with her. I knew a little bit about Elvis's life but the movie did a great job of showing what happens when fame and popularity take over a person's life. For Elvis, the love received from the crowds eventually drove the desire to be loved by his wife away. She could not compete with that and he lost himself in that desire. Tragic story, really. Do you think Jesus could have been swept away by the adoring crowds? Do you think there was any temptation on behalf of Christ to selfishly grasp the whimsical and shallow love of the crowds? Hebrews tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 So of course there was that temptation, right? But he also knew the darkness of the hearts of those that claimed to be his disciples. He knew that the minute he gave himself over to the crowds, the crowds would use him for their own schemes and their own desires. Once he no longer fulfilled those desires, he would have been discarded. This is exactly how fame works. Elvis not only became self-destructive, but also those closest to him were overcome by their own evil desires. How do you go from relative obscurity one day to being closely related to a rising star the next? Money, 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 fame, fame, fame. What do you do with that? You can't go anywhere without being accosted by maniacal fans that want to touch you, get your autograph, to have some piece of you or your time in one way or another. If you're someone close to that famous person, suddenly you are a gateway. You are a gateway to that fame. You have access that not many others do, and you reap the rewards of such proximity. Your lifestyle changes dramatically. And you begin to realize that when the fame runs out, and the lifestyle goes back to the way it was, more or less, Elvis had a manager that took advantage of him. Elvis's manager hired doctors to give him uppers to get him on the stage and then gave him downers to help him fall asleep. Was it, was it for Elvis's good? No, that was obvious. When you, watch, when you watch this play out, it is tragic. It's obvious what's happening. It was not for Elvis's good, not at all. He wouldn't get paid. It was, it was for the manager's good. It was for his family's good that this happened. They would not get paid if Elvis didn't perform. And that included his parents. The fame, the fame drove his mother to drink herself to death. His father stopped acting like a father that cared for him and instead fell into the same trap as the manager doing whatever was required to keep Elvis going. The problem, of course, is that the very people that were supposed to love Elvis and care for Elvis, in the end, did not do what was best for Elvis, but what was best for themselves, even if that meant Elvis's death at age 42. Fame and fortune can often, and does often, show what is in a person. And more often than not, it is nothing short of evil. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Elvis was a gospel guy. Elvis had a religious experience. Whether or not he was saved, I don't know, but he loved singing the gospel. 
He snuck into a church when he was but a young lad and was heavily influenced by a black church in, uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And yet, the love of money and the love of fame pierced him. Pierced him with many pangs. Jesus had no desire to have a gaggle of followers that were there only to use and abuse him. He wanted disciples that loved him for who he was. Not what he could give them or do for them. And we must keep in mind that this is his return to Jerusalem since the last time he was there when they were trying to kill him. By coming to Jerusalem with a big crowd, it would have been an announcement. It would have been a grand entrance in some way that would have drawn the attention of the scribes and Pharisees again. It was not time to draw that kind of attention. That time would come, but not today. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? John here is referring to the Jewish leaders. They were expecting Jesus to come to Jerusalem for the feast and would give them and it would give them an opportunity to pick up where they left off. The question offered by our text today is once again a translation that doesn't really capture the intent of the original language. Where is he? This question would be better understood is, where is that man? Or even more blunt, where is that deceiver? With an obvious tone of contempt. The Jewish leaders had no love for Christ or for his teachings. They had no interest in upsetting the current balance of power that they currently had. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that they could control. Not one that continuously blasphemes and causes the people to look elsewhere for their spiritual nourishment. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Often, as has been pointed out previously, when we see the word muttering, we can almost always intonate a negative attitude. Almost always. But here, I believe John means it in a different way. The word still means to convey intense feelings. That, that hasn't changed. It's still an intense feelings. But we'll soon see from the next verse that the people weren't discussing the topic of Jesus out loud. So we can see from the context that it's likely it just means sort of hushed tones. I, I sort of liken it to a marital, a marital squabble at, at, a, uh, at, a, at a birthday party or something, right? Intense disagreement, but done in such a way that most present wouldn't necessarily know anything was going on, or even if they did know something was going on, something was amiss, they wouldn't be able to exactly make out what the issue was. And here we start to see the crux of the issue at hand. Jesus asks a vital question in the Synoptic Gospels, and I'll quote here from Matthew 16 and verse 15, speaking directly to his disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus just talked about 
testifying about the evil works of the world. We covered that last week. Jesus, using court-like language, testifies that the world is evil. And here we have the verdict on the person and work of Jesus Christ to this point. We will see many such a verdicts as we continue through John's Gospel, but here in one verse we get two verdicts. Neither of which, by the way, are accurate. We'll start with the first verdict. He is a good man. In hushed tones, so as to not stir up the wrath of the Sanhedrin, the first group declare that Jesus is a good man. Well, what do they mean by that? Do you remember when Jesus confronts the man who boldly came before him, calling him good teacher, asking him what he must do in order to inherit eternal life? Luke 18, 18. Do you remember what Jesus' response was? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Jesus knew flattery in a trap when he saw one. What is the sense of good in this first verdict? That they agreed he was God? Not at all. They were using it in the same sense that we use it to speak of one another. So-and-so is a, is a good man. Or a good woman. Or, you know what, that's a good kid. Right? It means that they are generally the kind of people that you can get along with. And maybe, maybe trust to watch your house while you're away on holidays. That sort of thing. We use it to mean someone who appears moral and righteous as we would count righteousness. Maybe we would call these people trustworthy, polite, kind, maybe even honest, that sort of thing. Was Jesus moral? Was he righteous? Was he trustworthy? Was he kind and honest? Absolutely. But unlike us, he was all of those things to perfection. He was perfectly trustworthy. He was perfectly kind. He was perfectly moral. And being at the right hand of the Father, raised from the dead, we can loudly proclaim as Christians, Jesus is still all those things. He was perfect then, and he is perfect now. They didn't understand this then, and most people don't understand it now. Jesus demonstrated in many ways that he was indeed good. He demonstrated that he was indeed very good. He helped people. Lots of people. He healed many. He fed many. He taught some beautiful and wonderful things. But here's the rub. He also taught things that... If he was simply a man, which is what the implication of the verdict is, he was a good man, that he couldn't be good. He couldn't be good. He clearly taught with authority that no one else on earth had ever done. He wasn't claiming to be speaking like a prophet on behalf of God. Prophets say what? Thus saith the Lord. No, he said things like, You've heard it said, but I say. He has taken the prerogative to forgive sins. 
It's one thing to forgive those who have wronged you personally, but what kind of arrogance does it take to forgive trespasses that appear to have nothing to do with you? Now just imagine the situation for a moment. You have a problem with someone. They've sinned against you. I don't know, maybe they stole your lawnmower, right? Or something. And so you confront that person and you're hashing it out and suddenly your neighbor comes over and he joins in the conversation just as the thief admits, okay, okay, yes, I, I stole your lawnmower. Your neighbor, your neighbor looks him in the eye and says, I forgive you. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think he's lost his marbles? Right? I mean, you'd stand there stunned at the audacity of your neighbor. Why is that? It's because they are in no position to forgive them. They weren't the ones wronged. They have nothing to do with it. Who does this clown think he is? That's what you'd be thinking, and rightly so. Unless, of course, by breaking the law, he was breaking your neighbor's law. If your neighbor was the author of said law, right? Who has the right to set forth moral law? God, God alone. These people calling Jesus good were guilty of going what they were guilty of doing what many modern people with regards to to Jesus do. They uh, these people um, call Jesus good. They look at his good works. They, they look at the teaching that they agree with and they say nice things about Jesus. One of the most famous ones is Gandhi. Gandhi said all kinds of nice things about Jesus. I'm going to summarize here. But basically he said something like I like your Jesus. I just can't stand you Christians. Or something along those lines. Paraphrasing. Close enough. Jesus was a good man, Gandhi would say. Yet Gandhi would also deny that Jesus was God, something that Jesus most definitely declared of himself. If what Jesus declared himself, about himself wasn't true, then in no way could we or anyone else ever say that Jesus was good. This is where C.S. Lewis's famous quote comes in handy, but you've heard me use it time and again. So maybe I'll just... I don't want to sound like a broken record, so I'll just paraphrase for you. I'll give you the Coles Notes version. No way, Jose. Not possible. Either he's God and we should treat him as such, or he was a loon and we should run as far away as possible from him. And this, of course, leads me right into the second verdict. The second verdict declared, no, he's not good. He's a deceiver. He's leading people away. He's going to get them killed. He's a troublemaker. Don't be fooled by his miracles. They're card tricks. He's using smoke and mirrors or something. Have you not been listening to what he's been saying? He claims to be God. He's a nutter. I would say that either that if you look at either verdict, the second one is actually a little more rational. 
If you don't believe Jesus' claims, you cannot cherry-pick the doctrine you like and then reject the rest. Not when what you're rejecting is what we might call so over the top. This is not at all similar to looking at a politician's platform saying, oh, I like some of that. Ooh, I like that. That policy is a little idiotic. I don't agree with that one. Right? Not when the politician's platform is, don't steal. I like that. I like that one. I've got lots of possessions. I've had my truck stolen twice. Sick and tired of that. No stealing. Good law. I like it. We should bring that one in. Right? Don't lie. Well, uh, I, won't tell, I won't tell big lies. I'll tell smaller lies, though. Little white lies. Like, yes, yes, honey, you look good in those jeans. Right? Like, yeah, looks good. And then, don't have any other gods before me. <laughs> Well, solid platform politician right up until that one. Right? Seriously, would you vote for that guy? No. Well, of course not. Well, you know, two out of three isn't bad. No way. Right? No way. Of course not. So we can understand that those that rejected Jesus were doing so out of consistency with their understanding and belief of who Jesus claimed he was. We still deal with this today, and I find this category of people far easier to deal with than the former. The Jesus is a good guy crowd aren't rational. They're not logical. They're not reasonable. So when you try to show them how rationally speaking, Jesus can't be some sort of good teacher or a good moral guy, they don't care. Right? Why let rational thought stand in the way of the good, the good of my beliefs? This is what I believe. doesn't matter if it's rational or not. The ones that outright reject Jesus as God are at least, to some degree, being rational, considering the claims that we Christians make about Him. These people can be shown how it is perfectly rational. We can show them that it is perfectly reasonable. And we can tell them and show them that it is perfectly logical to accept Jesus' claims. And from my personal experience, with conversations with the outright rationalist, at least they'll give you a hearing. At least they will listen and consider what you're talking about. As we go along in the Gospel of John, we're going to see many other verdicts. There will be many opinions offered about who Jesus is. Verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. By this time, I think it's fair to say that most people knew exactly where the Sanhedrin stood with regards to Jesus. And because of this strong negativity towards him, those that may have had anything nice to say about him were especially careful not to speak openly about him. From this verse, we may even say that it was dangerous for anyone to be speaking about him, for even speaking about him in a negative fashion would show interest in the subject. Jesus was to be persona non grata amongst the people as far as it was concerned for the Jewish leaders. 
This verse also shows us a bit of insight into the sort of terror that the Jewish leaders had over the people. People wouldn't openly speak about a man for fear of the government. Where have we heard this before? Is it fair to say that the Jewish people were under the totalitarian thumb of both Rome and Jerusalem? When you are not able, or at least feel as though you are not able to freely speak out loud about certain topics or people, you do not live in a free society. We know that Israel was under the control of Rome, and for the most part, the Jewish people were afforded the opportunity to live their lives in peace under Roman rule. At this point in history, as long as you paid your taxes and you kept the peace, you were pretty much left alone. Stop paying your taxes and begin riots. Well, that's then the Ro when, the, when the Roman army would uh, make you pay a hefty price for your, for your disobedience, I guess you could say. But the everyday lives of the people were largely left under Jewish rule. And the burdens put on the people by their leaders was often a heavy one. The Jewish people did not have the freedom to speak openly about this Jesus, although obviously he was a hot topic. And everyone, in hushed tones, were talking about him. A lesson here for leaders everywhere. You can stop people from expressing themselves, themselves out in the open, but you'll never stop them from sharing their thoughts and beliefs, no matter how, how hard you might try. So in conclusion today, it's hard not to come back to John's ex exhortation week after week. I remember a number of years ago when I preached through the Gospel of John, almost every week I went back to the same part, and I know why I did. Every part of John's Gospel drives home John's point. And the point, of course, comes from chapter 20 and verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Today we've covered a couple of the more common opinions about who people think Jesus is. Jews to this day view him as a deceiver, one who has led people astray. Much of the rest of the unbelieving world view him as a good teacher, but know very little about him or what he actually taught. Each and every week we come to this place to offer our love and worship to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We come here knowing that we have eternal life, something that we cannot earn, a wonderful gift of life that has been given to us. Our desire should be to see Him glorified, to see His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But how do we do that? For the longest time, many in, in the church thought of Christ as an independent Savior. An independent Savior. One who saves individuals and saves little else. And because of that, they reject the idea that God's law, His rule and reign, started at ascension and continues to this day through the dedicated and committed work of the saints his ambassadors, his subjects. 
We live in a country and in a time where much of what Jesus teaches is now forbidden and must be said in quiet mutterings for fear of fines or possible outright arrest. It may get worse before it gets better. Only God knows the answer to that. Regardless, the question needs an answer. Do you believe and understand who Jesus is? Do you believe and understand that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone? Do you believe and understand that in a world that seems to be losing the ability to answer these questions with clarity and conviction, that it is our job, my dear saint, to do so while you have breath on this earth. His kingdom will come even here. We shall seek first His kingdom and His righteousness because He is the Lamb who is worthy. So I exhort you, be brave. Speak the truth. Jesus is Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. We thank you for the continued opportunity to come before you as a group, as a church, as a congregation, and listen to your truth so that we may in turn go out and share that truth with others around us. Give us strength of courage, Lord. Help us to see clearly, to think clearly, and to act in accordance with your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.